Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the Pulp magazines for over 25 years. Online at thepulp.net. In this Pulp Event Podcast, Michelle Nolan discusses Love on the Racks, a survey of romance publications from the Pulp magazines to the comics. A longtime journalist, Michelle is author of multiple articles and books, including Love on the Racks. A History of American Romance Comics. This event was recorded on Thursday, August 19, 2021, at PulpFest 2021 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. One of the difficult aspects of talking about uh, romance pulps and comics is that you're either talking to people who know everything about the topic or people who know nothing about the topic. And so I try to reach the middle of this um, I've done four books for McFarlane and edited about 20 more. And they, um, they always joke with me that I was the only person they could find who not only knew about this stuff, but collected it back in the day when virtually nobody cared about romance or sports, which are the two areas of my expertise. And, uh, and also I combined the two somewhat in terms of some of the articles about sports or romance. Anyway, um, Okay, the first thing I want to do is uh, have, have uh, some pulp covers put on here. Okay, I'll tell you briefly why I picked them. Complete Love from Ace Publications, later of the double novel fame. They were a major comic book and uh, pulp publisher. Um, not huge, but significant. Uh, top of the line. Um, they used to run almost nothing but line-drawn uh, hair fashion covers. And they sold extremely well because women idealized the hair fashions. And they were probably, if you collected all of them, the comic books reprinted the pulps um, or vice versa. But if you did, if you collected all of them, you would have uh, virtually every hairstyle ever created in uh, the 1940s and early 50s. Okay, um, well, Cupid's Diary was is a very obscure and forgotten magazine today, but it uh, ran, uh, oh gosh, uh, hundreds of issues, not hundreds, but almost 200 issues. And it was very popular in the 1920s and was probably the second most popular early romance pulp after, of course, um, Love Story magazine, which celebrates its 100th anniversary this year. Now, Lori Powers, who many of you know, she is infinitely more uh, informed on Love Story than I am. won't pretend to know even 1% of what Lori knows about that magazine, but it was the first real love story magazine, the first genuine romance magazine. Although romance has been a topic for more than 100 years before that. I mean, it is the human condition. Okay, um, what do we, okay, Gay Love obviously is a great, this is from Columbia, which published Archie Comics later. Uh, Columbia was a, a very significant pulp publisher, although they often had the worst covers. But they had pretty good romance covers, which is unusual, and a lot of people collect them. The, uh, the title, of course, had nothing to do with sexual orientation. It, it was gay was meant happy. Now today, only one kid in 20 knows that gay means happy. But anyway, that's the story there. Um, Golden West was an ace. Uh, they had um, a fairly, um, Ranch Romances was wildly successful, and there were a couple other titles too, like Rangeland Romances from popular publications. Golden West was nowhere near as successful, but I love the title, 
I even bought an issue with the, the title defaced, I see. But I love the title because it just seemed to resonate with the happiness of the cowgirls and cowboys. And um, I've always thought that the real Old West probably had a great many more romantic affairs than shoot 'em ups Popular Love was a title, that title followed Thrilling Love, which we'll see in a minute. Was Pop was uh, Ned Pine's second romance uh, uh, publication, pulp from uh, actually third if you count ranch romances, but it was followed um, Thrilling Love, and Thrilling Love sold so well that Pines brought out Popular Love, and it sold very well for many years too. Uh, they also had uh, an awful lot of, of uh, uh, wartime covers with military themes, which are highly collectible. Um, Star Western was uh, ostensibly a Western adventure pulp, but it actually, for the most part, was a romantic Western pulp. And most of the stories uh, had titles like A Man for the Boot Hill Blonde, which I think is one of my favorite titles, and that's why I use this magazine. Um, okay, uh, Ten Story Love, another hairstyle, another ace publication with the hairstyle, and you can see it's radically different from the other one. And believe me, every every hairstyle you could possibly imagine has been on ace pulp covers and comic books too. Okay, Winning Love was part of the Speed, formerly Spicy Trojan publications, and it only published a you know relative you know handful of pulps, but they uh, did have interesting titles like Winning Love, Magic Love, uh, you know Amore. I mean, they they didn't settle for average titles, which I thought was nice. And I like this one because. This is kind of the archetypical, this one is from 1945, and this is your archetypical My Soldier is Back cover, and I like it a lot. Um, let's see, Western Romances. This is from uh, 1934, and uh, this was done, I believe, by Dell. Uh, there may have, it may have been published by more than one publisher, but it was um, you know, one of the earliest imitations of ranch romances. But the difference was the girl and the guy were in all these improbable poses, such as wearing a dress, riding side saddle on a horse, being pursued by outlaws, and having a, a, a gunfight. And it, they just the covers just don't make any sense at all on this title. So you know that's what I have to say there. Now, um, thrilling love was one of the that first came out in 19, late 1931. So we're celebrating 90 years. And this was Ned Pines, one of his three flagship publications, uh, Thrilling Detective, and uh, I think Thrilling was it? Oh, I, I can't even remember the other one. <laughs> anyway, this this is um, this was the uh, a very very popular romance publication, and it ran to 239 issues. Some people think 240, but anyway, 239. And uh, this was the second most successful romance publication in terms of, uh, you know, newsstand exposure and whatnot. And it featured all kinds of covers, including more football covers than anyone except Love Story magazine, which had one or two every year. And um, I particularly like those football covers because there's nothing more romantic, as my brother would tell you, my famous all-American brother, who of a great football player in the arms of a beautiful cheerleader. And that was very common. So the all I love the all-American aspects of that. And that takes care of, no, don't show those yet. This is comic books. Okay, that takes care of the um, uh, covers. I just wanted to show you the variety of it. Um, 
a lot of people don't realize this, but uh, there were a minimum, now I may have missed a few of one shots and whatnot, but there were a minimum of 148 romance pulp titles, including a couple dozen Western romance pulps, which were very romantic. And these 148 titles um, composed, a, I'm going to speak primarily in round numbers, but slightly over 8,200 issues. And that's uh, an ama that's that's fully 20% of all pulps were romance pulps. And yet, those of you who've been around for a while, which is most of us, can tell you that maybe 1% of collectors asked for romance pulps in the 60s, 70s, and 80s when our hobby was fairly young. Nobody cared about romance pulps. You, could, you couldn't give them away. Nobody even brought them to shows because they were worth like 50 cents or a dollar at the most. And uh, except for maybe the Bergie covers, and there's a few that were done by exception, Lotus Stein, that kind of thing. But many of them were very, they just were throwaways. And But 8,000, over 8,000 romance pulps out of 40,000 pulps published between the 19, early 1900s and 1960 when they were pretty much vanished. And it's just amazing to me that romance pulps have never received their due and never will. The biggest reason they haven't is because nobody cares or knows about any of the authors. I mean, think about it. Very few writers of any consequence had their bylines in um, romance pulps, except some of the writers, like Robert Silverberg, would write under women's names and produce uh, either pornographic type romance or, in Silverberg's case, good pornographic, very literate pornography, but if such a thing exists. But it was, it was uh, amazing how the writers today, uh, you look in an indici uh, in index and you don't see any name you recognize. And how many of those were really men, I don't know. But the first transgender uh, situation was all the men who wrote for romance pulps under women's names. And did you know that women would not buy romance pulps if they were written by men? They just wasn't resonate, didn't resonate. Okay, um, and so the the leading publisher, most of the publishers did publish romance pulps. The leading publisher was, um, uh, of course, um, Street and well, no, actually, it wasn't Street and Smith because they they only did a few aside from Love Story, but Popular Publications, which of course did The Shadow and and other famous uh, pulps, but. 1,400, more than 1,400 uh, romance pulps and over 20 titles. Pretty impressive. And um, that was, uh, the Star Western was one of those. Um, Street and Smith did uh, nearly 1,400, but then the vast majority were Love Story magazine. Uh, and they also did a couple of good Western romance pulps. Then we had Thrilling, which did over 800. Uh, we had uh, Columbia, almost 400. And on Ace, almost 400. And, and um, ironically, the one publisher that ne just didn't do romance pulps was uh, Martin Goodman at uh, what we now know as Timely or Marvel Comics. But Martin Goodman produced over 700 pulps, maybe over 800, depends on which ones are really Martin Goodman. But 20 issues, as far as I can tell, were romance pulps. So it was amazing that Marvel did not do 
romance pulps. And yet, when it came to comic books, boom, tons of Marvel comic romance. Okay, so I don't know what happened in Martin Goodman's mind. He's, he was never interviewed about that topic, to the best of my knowledge. Okay, um, also uh, Muncie, uh, Fiction House, Clayton, you know, Dell, all those publishers. And then there were also 1,400 miscellaneous romance pulps running, running, you know, one to whatever number of issues. And uh, that was about 1,400 of them. Amazing number of miscellaneous uh, small publishers all gave it a try, very similar to comic books. So, um, in, um, you know, the, the 8,000 issues had over, one, generally had over 100,000 words an issue. So it took a while to read a pulp, just like a book. And more than 8 million words have been put into the romance pulps. And that's why Love Story magazine outsold every other pulp much of the time. Because women were readers and men were thrill seekers. Now, I know that's stereotypical, but it is, it is or was anyway the truth back in the 30s and 40s. And the number of, of uh, readers were that women just bought love pulps by, you know, by the ton. And women generally didn't care who wrote the stories. They just wanted good. You know. By the way, the few famous names in romance writing like Faith Baldwin, uh, I don't think they wrote for the pulps, although I may be wrong about that, or they may have written under pen names. Um, okay, so the, a lot of people think the pulps faded and the comics bloomed, but the real transition was the teen humor books. And there was the first te te uh, romance comic was called Harold Teen, and it was a Dell one-shot in 1941, it was a newspaper reprint, uh, newspaper reprint of, of Carl Ed's famous teen strip, but it wasn't really a teenage humor book. In this, it was more of a teen life book. I call them. The first real teen humor book was um, uh, Pep Comics number uh, 22, with the first Archie story, which was all of six pages, and then Wilbur beat Archie by three months to the sands in Zip Comics. And uh, but anyway, Archie number one was 1942, and I'm responsible for Archie being worth a lot of money today because when my newspaper uh, went desperately uh, not under but had desperate circumstances during the um, Great Recession in 2008-29, um, I had to auction off my Archie one and it, with Heritage, and it went for over ten thousand dollars. Now it's worth over twenty-five thousand. So I sort of wish I hadn't done it, but I'm the one who started it by auctioning off. It's very rare. It's estimated there are fewer copies of Archie Number One by half or more than Action Number One. So Archie Number One is a very hard book to find, and I understand that my copy had hundreds of bids. So it was interesting, and I don't miss it. It's been reprinted. Um, okay, in 1944, romance uh, came to the comic books big time when Timely Comics, of course, Marvel. Uh, introduced Patsy Walker in Miss America Comics Number no. 2, which was basically a calling-all-girls knockoff designed for teenage girls to read. Um, but Patsy Walker appeared in many more, more than twice as many stories as Archie did after her first appearance until through the late 40s. And Archie didn't really... Archie was published by a very poverty-stricken company, MLJ, which became the Archie series, and there was much fewer comics on the stands with Archie. 
And Patsy Walker in 1950s appeared in six comics on a regular basis. Now that's pretty amazing, and the only character that did that at the same time was Superman. So it was interesting. Um, Patsy Walker was and a very romantic character because she had a boyfriend named Buzz Baxter, who was the heartthrob of the school and starred in every sport known to man. And it was uh, it was quite the uh, it was very much a romance comic in a lot of ways. Um, Patsy, uh, and then the other thing about the link to romance comics was Calling All Girls debuted in 1941 from Parents Magazine. And this was during a year when virtually all comics were uh, dealt with the fantastic superheroes, super cowboys, you name it. But comic books in 1941, there were newspaper reprint comics, you know, maybe a dozen titles. But the vast majority of the issues were superhero or fantastic type publications, the feats of daring do that nobody could imagine doing. And the idea of publishing a comic design just for girls was considered revolutionary. And this actually led to the first uh, romance comics because Parents Magazine's comics had the imprimatur of the Saturday Evening Post and other publications that favored Wortham. And uh, Parents, uh, Parents published a zillion comic books <coughs> for an uh, unknown publisher today. Okay, so uh, the thing about romance comics that most people don't realize is that this was the most phenomenal publishing you know, thing that ever happened in America. Nothing like it um, in terms of, of what it came about. Um, the uh, obviously everybody thinks Superman revolutionized comics, and he did. I mean, no question about it. Superheroes were huge in the uh, um, '40s, in most uh, part of the '40s, a so World War II period. But that was largely a coincidence of having a major war start at the same time as superheroes. Um, but superheroes faded pretty fast, uh, and they didn't really come back, other than the DC comics, which they never left their major trio of Wonder Woman and Batman and Superman. But the, uh, the romance comics outsold the superhero comics hugely. In 1947, the first romance comic, Simon and Kirby created it because they wanted to imitate magazines like True Story, as Joe Simon said in his book, The Comic Book Makers. And I asked Jack Kirby once, and he said, I enjoyed doing those. They were fun because we did crime stories. We did sex stories. We didn't just do romance stories. And he was right. The romance stories in, um, uh, you know, young love, uh, romance and then the next, a year or two later, young love, were they had, they had incredible titles like The Savage in Her and Gangland Girl and things like that. And uh, we're talking about stories that the Comics Code would never have approved and, by the way, were never reprinted, um, not even with the cleavage uh, cut or, you know, paid it over. Um, did you know that after the Comics Code Authority came about, that cleavage was forbidden in comics under any circumstances, even with bathing suits? Girls didn't have breasts for a long time. <laughs> okay, it was um, from 1949 to 1959, there were over 3,700 issues of romance comics from corporate mainstream publishers. And that's about 29 per month or about one new romance comic for those that 11-year period per day. And, it, you know, it was incredible how they were bought like crazy. 
And there was a slump, though, which I named the Love Glut, and that got picked up in, ni- in 1950. Um, in 1940, well, it's back to 1949. In 1949, when romance comics really began to bloom, it took a while for the, all the publishers to catch up to, you know, uh, Simon and Kirby. But they noticed how well Simon and Kirby's comics sold, and that's why they... So there were 57 issues in the 21 months between Simon and Kirby's first romance comic, late 1947, and the middle of 1949. So you've got um, uh, not very many romance comics. However, in the last uh, six months of 1949, there were 256 issues of romance comics on 118 titles from 22 companies. Now, nothing like that's ever happened in America, in any genre. Never happened. Okay, and it was, it was absolutely a matter of timing because after World War II, Rosie the Riveter vanished. Women, can, my mother was the only, she was CEO of the Red Cross Blood Bank in San Jose where Silicon Valley is now. She was the only working woman in my uh, K through uh, sixth grade classes. And every time I had problems, she got blamed for being a working mom. And she hated that. But I'm just saying that women went back home. And romance comics were part of that. They reflected the fact that the only women who worked in romance comics were primarily teachers, nurses, secretaries, a few sob sister journalists, uh, for glamour's sake. That's how I got into it. And also, um, you know, the oddball story, but for the most, and the gang malls, of course, lots of gang malls. But um, there were uh, very few, um, you know, the women were domesticated, and for the most part, and romance comics largely focused on the man teaching the woman the error of her ways. And this went on for quite a while. Fawcett comics, almost, they had 230 some odd romance comics, Almost every single story had the man teaching the woman the error of her ways. So a lot of misogyny going on in those comics. And so um, the, uh, the, the thing is, at one time, there were uh, just an incredible number, over 500 romance comics published in that one-year period between middle 49 and middle 50. However, there were so many published that the love blood effect took over. And to give you an example, in December of 49, there were 64 uh, romance issues published with that date. Um, in the, in the uh, uh, first uh, seven months of uh, 1949, there were 63 issues, period. So you can see that it really increased. However, in um, 1950, 117 of the 147 titles that began 1950 were gone. That's uh, about um, more than, it's almost uh, 80%. It's, it's an incredible, that also is something that had never happened in America, where comic book genre almost vanished. Uh, there were 30-odd titles. Young Romance and Young Love remained um, regular. Uh, Sweethearts and Life Story were the only monthly romance comics in 1950, and they were both from Fawcett based on their magazines for women. You know, in fact, they even had a magazine called Life Story. And um, it's just an amazing phenomenon how they, they just mushroomed in growth 
and they just as fast bombed out. Now, they slowly came back in 1951 and 52. A lot of people don't know this, but in 1952, there were 3,000, round numbers, 3,000, I think 260-odd corporate comic books. Um, I don't mean the eight, the little Tijuana Bibles. I mean the, the actual real comic books on the stands. 1952 was the just like an earthquake. Comic books went crazy in all genres, but one in six comics was still a romance comic, and it had been one in five and one in uh, four in 40, parts of 49 and 50. But comic, romance comics were never defeated, and they were published all the way through the 50s more than any one girl could possibly keep up with. And so girls never had trouble finding any romance. They were always, I remember them on the stands. I started buying them in 1956, and I was eight. And I can tell you, there were way more choices of romance comics than there were of any other genre, except maybe funny animals from Disney and the like. There are a lot of those from Dell. But that's because the Comics Code Authority, and of course, Dell refused to join because they claimed Dell comics are good comics. But Dell was the only publisher that throughout the 40s and 50s, other than a Western romance one-shot, they were the only publisher that adamantly refused to publish romance comics. They said they were sick, perverted, twisted examples of humanity. And they just would not publish romance comics, period. They did do some teen humor like Henry Aldrich based on the radio and TV and movie and um, movies. And uh, it was kind of sad that, you know, but on the other hand, everybody else still published romance comics. But the trouble is the comics code, along with the economy of the 50s, the influence of television and paperback books, for example, on the adult population, there, there were no, um, there were half as many romance comics published in 1959 as there were in 1952. So in a very short time, it was mainly television that destroyed the comic book. It wasn't the comics code, it was television. And uh, unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to edit David Hadju's uh, generally good book, the, you know, the what was it called, the Ten Cent uh, Menace or something like that. I forget, came out about 10 years ago. But he's a music critic, but he wrote a very inaccurate book about set comic censorship. And um, Amy Kisty Nyberg did a much better job on her seal of approval title for that comics code. But back to romance comics, they were, after the comics code came in, Harvey published some of the raciest in the early 50s, and titles like I Joined a Teen Sex Club became My Foolish Dream, as I put into, uh, well, this is a new paperback version. It's much cheaper than a hardbound. It's in the fourth printing. So they've never, <laughs> love has stayed. But uh, I, I was shocked when McFarland uh, kept publishing my book. I, I had no idea. But anyway, um, the, uh, the Harvey published very, very sensual titles and covers, and they just got totally wiped out. And as far as cleavage goes, uh-uh. The Comics Code adamantly forbid any kind of sexuality uh, among women. No lingerie panels, like Overstreet has often said, no transvestite covers, for God's sake. No nothing of any kind of, uh, no bondage, no nothing. It was, it, it was changed. But a lot of people are under the mistaken impression that the comics code destroyed comics. Far from it. 
it just balanced the market. Now, granted, a lot of the comics were banal and not very interesting. And uh, John Benson, who's an expert on uh, Matt Baker and Dana Dutch, uh, the famous um, artist and writer of the St. John romance comics that today are worth a zillion dollars each, um, they um, th that kind of thing was uh, not so prevalent in St. John comics. So John published a book called Romance Without Tears because all after the Comics Code came in, DC and uh, uh, Marvel and Harvey and the other publishers just put tears on every girl's, you know, the, the, co the covers had tears like crazy. Um, and uh, as John pointed out in his good, two good books about romance comics, or St. John romance comics, they were um, just, St. John published wonderful, not that many books, but they published wonderful realistic stories about human emotions and very few tears. Uh, mostly just frustration, like, why won't Henry call me? You know, things like that. Um, anyway, uh, so the, um, the other thing that I want to point out is that in 1939, uh, based on an account that my friend Dan Stevenson has done, he's the leading comic book historian when it comes to comic book uh, frequency and existence, you know, that kind of thing. Um, there were 322 uh, commercial comics in 1939, 322. Well, there were more romance comics than that, just romance, 10 years later in uh, 1949-1950, that one-year period before the love glut. And the other thing is there are interesting little phenomenons like uh, uh, Wonder Woman appeared in a comic book called Sensation Comics. Um, that's actually where she first appeared on a regular basis after her tryout in All-Star Number 8 in a one-shot separate story at the end. Um, she later joined the Justice Society, but she was the secretary for a while. And, you know, talk about sexism. But anyway, Wonder Woman uh, uh, was in Sensation Comics for over a decade. And at the end of the run, before they turned it into a horror comic uh, called Sensation Mystery, they uh, could have been titled Sensation Romance Comics because all of the stories were designed to be read by girls and all of the girls were heroines. You know, Astra Girl of the Future, Dr. Pat. They had girls doing things that nobody did in comic books. Even the real human being, not just Wonder Woman. And it was an amazing 13-issue run. But number 94 shows Steve Trevor carrying Wonder Woman over a body of water. Now, that made no sense whatsoever. Uh, and if you can imagine, the first time I saw that cover, I said, what the... You know, how can, how can Wonder Woman be carried over a body of water? You know, a big puddle or so. I forget how big it was. But that cover was amazing. Well, they were trying to convert Wonder Woman into a romance comic. And they even made her the romance editor of a newspaper and for a couple issues. And then she finally got back on the beam. I don't think it sold too well. And they made her, you know. But, you know, boys did not buy Wonder Woman, with rare exceptions, and I don't, I don't think I ever recall a boy buying or reading a romance comic when I was uh, a young reader and a teenager, 50s and 60s. Um, I went to high school and college in the 50s and 60s, and I took a lot of flack for buying comic books and collecting them because I was the only one that did that in my whole college, in my whole high school. Nobody did it but me. So I was considered, the, they, the word nerd I don't think existed yet, but that was, the, that was me. Okay, and it was, the, the whole thing about romance comics is that they, um, they just 
don't, uh, they don't touch, touch a, they touch a nerve, but many of them were very unrealistic after the comics code came in. But they, Charlton published over a thousand of them in the 60s. DC hung on and published over 600 of them in the 60s. I mean, it's hard to believe that in the 60s, of course, you all know that the first half of the 60s are really the 50s. It wasn't until, you know, the uh, Gulf of Tonkin incidents, you know, the LBJ's fiasco, uh, began the real 60s for most of us. But I well remember boys never... I don't. I never. I don't think I ever saw a boy with a romance comic reading a romance comic or anything else. They wouldn't even buy them for their sisters, you know. And so it was. A, a, they were very much designed for females. And I imagine, even though most of the romance pulps were gone by the time I was, you know, buying comics, uh, the I would imagine that very few men bought romance pulps too. I seriously doubt if hardly any did. Does anybody have any questions at this point? Um, yes. You were saying that you just kind of destroyed, you just kind of destroyed the, the uh, part of the romance comics? Well, they destroyed a lot of comics, period, but romance especially. Um, so what's the deal with DC comics? Is it similar with them? Oh, yeah, very much so. Well, the code forced EC to drop all of its uh, horror comics and other crime you know, they wouldn't allow words like crime and terror and horror to appear on the covers. And they had to create comics like Piracy and Valor and Incredible Science Fiction and Site, you know, MD and uh, Extra for a journalism. They, they created EC in 1955, was forced, and, late, and then they ended in 56, um, was forced to do, um, you know, dramatic stories, but they had nothing to do with horror or crime. And all the comic books that had crime in the title were gone by the end of 1955. And um, the, the Comics Code just wouldn't allow it. And, and the Comics Code was a self-censorship organization run by uh, a man uh, who supervised a whole slew of uh, ladies who censored the stories and had brought that sensibility. They brought a middle-class, uh, you know, non-sexual kind of like, uh, you don't want to show this, this, or this into the comic books. And not just romance comics, but all comics. And they were... What's that? Oh, yeah. And now I want, by the way, uh, any more questions before I show the uh, cover? Oh, yes. Well, okay. I don't recall it, but I'll say this: You're, you might be right in the context that. Okay, I believe you. But the vast, thank you for the comment. The, the vast majority of romance comics were the wish dreams of men, because there there were a few female editors, especially at DC Comics, uh, and Ray Herman at, at Orbit Comics, but. For the most part, the editors were men, uh, all of them at Fawcett Comics, and uh, they wrote romance stories the way they thought that romance stories should. In other words, they, they were it was their wish dreams. You know, most men without sex. I mean, they couldn't do that. 
but they, you know, wishing that the woman would come and learn the error of her ways and wishing that she would, you know, call up Joe and say, oh, Joe, I miss you so much. Come back. Things like that. I mean, the, the, the themes of the romance comics uh, were, were varied and many, many types of themes. Uh, I, I wanted to, before we show these images, I wanted to read the chapters of my book on romance comics only because this will show you how they changed and how they varied. This will only take a minute. Uh, Pulp Love and True Confessions, What Came Before Romance Comics, Twix, Teens, and Tears, How Teen Humor and Girls Comics Provided a Bridge to Romance, uh, Young Romance in Bloom, How Love Came to the Comic Books, Love Conquers All, The Record Growth of Romance Comics in 1949, The Love Glut, The Romance Boom and Bust in 1950, Six Writers of the Purple Page, A Short-Lived Flirtation with Western Romance, chapter, You Can't Keep a Good Girl or Guy Down Before the Comics Code, How Romance Comics Rebounded in the 1950s, Minor League Lovers, One-Shot Wonders, and Other Short-Lived Flirtations, lots of those, Cut That Cleavage Before and After the Comics Code Authority, The Bland Leading the Bland, When Tears Began to Flow Freely, Hippies, Harpies, and Heroines, National Comics Takes Charge in the 1960s and 70s. The last chapter, Where Love Has Gone, The End of Young Romance and Young Love, which were, other than some Charlton reprint titles, Young Love was the last romance comic. And so let's show some uh, pictures of the romance. Okay, here is a great example of virtually every DC Comics romance cover after the Comics Code. This is girls' romances um, from, uh, let me get the right date here, uh, 1962 and number 81. And it's, it's uh, so typical. The boy says, stay out of my life. I don't want your pity. And the girl is just devastated. And that is a very typical cover. Okay, let's move on. Now, here you've got a girl crying her eyes out because her boyfriend is entering the tunnel of love with another girl. Okay, and somehow or other, on DC covers, the the uh, the girl who was who was uh, uh, you know saddened and tear stained, somehow always appeared in the right place at the right time to spot betrayal. Okay, go ahead. In love. Now here's a fascinating example of what could be done before the code. This is a Simon and Kirby. This is when they had their brief-lived uh, uh, self-publishing company called Mainline Comics which later uh, got sold to Charlton. Charlton bought all the... <laughs> but Bride of the Star is a book-length uh, full... It's, it's an incredible story uh, based on um, uh, Jack Kirby's knowledge of sports. And he, they, this is basically written by a guy who rooted for the Brooklyn Dodgers. You can tell Joe Simon, uh, who probably wrote most of it, but with, you can see the Kirby influence. And that, by the way, is a Kirby cover. And it, it's an amazing, uh, of course, I like sports, so that's uh, something. But it's an amazing um, example of a genre, romance, melded with a different genre. And this story had ups and downs and ups and downs, both on and off the field. And it did end happily after almost 30 pages. Okay, but that's a great book. Here's one that's typical of the kind of thing that they were trying to ask girls in the pre-code days. Uh, 
Mine was a life of trickery. I was labeled dangerous. Okay, be honest. Are you a moral marauder? Okay, this was very common in romance comics. Um, all right. Uh, Love Diary, same publisher, our, our publishing with Ray Herman, who I believe, I, I don't want to libel her here, but I believe she was a gay woman who loved editing romance comics, but she did it with a real twist. She also was the first uh, editor to give John Buscema, who was a great artist for Marvel later, the, his first real chance in comics, and he did some wonderful comics for this company. Um, here's an impressionistic cover that you almost never saw on romance comics. Impressionistic covers were very uncommon. Um, I call it the Pablo Picasso cover or the Salvador Dali cover of, of comic books, but this is something you almost never saw. Um, and then uh, there was a classic cover, which I don't think I have here, uh, which had a woman reading a newspaper section that said, help wanted male. <laughs> um, okay, go ahead. Sorority Secret. Now, this is a typical of the variety of romance comics before the comics code. Um, Toby Press, which published Great Lover Romances, which was one of the sexier romance titles, they published a one-shot called Sorority Secrets. And the, she's saying, so this is what goes on during study hour. But it's a, it was all about sorority girls and how they really, really, really wanted their man and how they didn't really like each other in those sororities. They were rivals. And every story was drenched with drama, campus. Now, the last issue of Great Lover Romances was Sorority Secrets number two, but I, why they didn't publish, they were going out of business anyway, so that's probably why. But anyway, that was a good one, okay? Oh, Young Romance. Now, here is um, Young Romance. Uh, this is the uh, uh, fourth issue, and they, this is a more typical, uh, the, the, the girl on the right, talk, they talk about Bob Stanton, and she goes, don't count me out yet, babe. Uh, no, hums, no homespun little snip is going to steal any marches on me. I always get what I go after, and I'll get Bob. Now, that was a very typical Simon and Kirby type dr dr drama-drenched cover. Good point. Yeah. <laughs> anyway... Uh, this, this was the first issue where they took off the logo for the more adult readers of comics, which was on the first three issues. And that's the only time in comics history that they've actually uh, tried to discourage young readers from buying a comic book, if you can imagine. How much time do I have left, Mike? Five minutes? Four minutes. Four minutes, okay. I've had fun. <laughs> time flies. Uh, okay, go ahead. This was the last issue of Young Romance under Joe Simon and, well, Kirby has already gone back to Marvel and DC, but this was the last issue of Young Romance before Crestwood sold its comic book line, which was not very big, to, um, they had Black Magic and a couple other titles, but they sold out to DC. And that is why DC was able to reprint Young Romance number one in its millennial edition series. Um, okay, the... Uh, uh, oh, here's the Savage Inner, which I thought was a classic cover and a classic story. That story is a real wowzer, and it's a Simon and Kirby masterpiece. Okay, uh, and here's Gang Sweetheart, another very typical crime story. Crime stories appeared with great regularity in these Simon and Kirby romance comics. Okay, and that's it there. Um, 
Now, as far as, um, and let me finish off by saying that um, if you, just there was, um, okay, I told you about the numbers. Um, oh, in 1950, Marvel canceled or suspended 25 of 30 romance titles, um, and that was because Martin Goodman realized they weren't selling, and he was the master of the knockoff. And that's why Stan Lee, I wrote a tribute to him about this, wound up on a horse, a black horse, dressed all in black, an incredible knockoff of the Durango Kid who was popular in movies and comic books at the time. And I, I remember I did a tribute, and Stan said to me, how did you know that was me on the horse? And I said, oh, a little horse he told me. And, you know, <laughs> actually, uh, one of his artists told me. Um, anyway, uh, uh, Fox killed all 21 of its romance titles, and um, it's, uh, you know, and then the last thing that uh, appeared, uh, you know, the, the one thing I wanted to cover was that um, Mad Magazine was about to hit the stands. Uh, I think Harvey Kurtzman had the conception, and the last issue of DC's um, uh, Modern Love had the, the love story to end all, all love stories, and this is, this is a parody of romance comics. And it had things in it like, um, it, it, the, the publisher is named T. Tot because they had Tiny Tots comics published. And, and it was actually done by Bill Gaines and Alf Feldstein. But um, T. Tot publishes comics with, with themes like crime ought to pay, crime should pay. According to his motto, a comic book by Tot hits the spot. And no more will we have to rely upon crime comics for our paltry profits. Love will make us millions. Well, it didn't work out. And he committed suicide and took two or three people with him in the office. And his uh, avatars for Kirby and Simon and Kirby jumped off the ledge. And, and it was a, this is the most incredible, um, this is the most incredible story I've ever seen in a romance comic. It's been reprinted many times. And it's a classic. Um, so anyway, that's uh, I just got into that because it's such an incredible story and it, it it really showed the love glut. But romance comics lasted for uh, you know twenty almost three more decades. So it wasn't like the end of romance comics; it was just the end of certain kinds. Now, does anybody have any questions before we end? One. Oh. One question. Okay. Well. Um, mean like space western? Yeah. Uh, no, there were no. To the best of my knowledge, uh, both both old and new, I've never seen a a romance comic with a science fiction theme. There was a teenage romance comic called Jetta, the teenage sweetheart of 20, uh, 2052. That was standard. Published three issues of that about a hundred years in the future in teenage life. You're cooking with you know you're, you're cooking with atomic gas and expressions like that, and they Jetta was of course a heartthrob that wore eight inch heels and a tiny dress and and looked very futuristic and they jetted off on dates to other planets you know it was just a it's those comic books are incredibly I have all three they're incredibly hard to find I know I've been offered over five thousand dollars for my set of three. And I don't want to sell them because they, you know, I, they've been reprinted, so you can buy the reprint book. But Dan DiCarlo did it, and he is obviously one of the very best teenage, probably the best. So, anything else, real quick? Nope.
Okay, thank you. Thank you, Michelle. Oh, and if you want, if you want to look at any of the books, I'll leave them up here for a couple of minutes if you want to see what's there. You've been listening to a Pulp Event podcast brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the Pulp magazines for over 25 years. Please visit us online at thepulp.net. Also, look for the PulpNet on Facebook and on Twitter. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the pulps. The Pulp Event Podcast is copyright 2021.